back on air. Welcome once again to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. It's the podcast that celebrates the life and times of the English and Australian cricketers who played in only one Ashes test. How did they come to be selected? How did they perform? And above all, what did it mean to them to play in the Ashes? In some cases, this Ashes test was their one and only test appearance, as was the case with our last guest, Mike Smith of Gloucestershire. Mike recalled a strange, less than inviting atmosphere when he turned up for duty for the fourth test of the 1997 series. I could sense that something wasn't right, not least because the day before, I bowled at Michael Atherton in the nets and he slogged me all over Edinley. The confusion behind the scenes was replicated in the middle as Australia won by an innings to take a 2-1 lead in the series. The fifth test at Trent Bridge turned into another comfortable Aussie win, meaning that Australia had secured both the Ashes and the series, and so making the sixth and final test a dead rubber. After giving debuts to Mike Smith and Dean Headley during the series, the selectors turned to a bowler who had already played seven tests for England, but never in the Ashes, Peter Martin of Lancashire. I think it's time we brought today's guest into the attack. He's standing by his mark, new cherry in hand, and he's ready and willing to speak with us. Peter Martin was a right-arm fast-medium bowler for Lancashire and England. He took 606 first-class wickets in a 16-year career and played 20 ODIs and eight tests, including his one Ashes test at the Oval in 1997. Peter, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. I'm glad you reminded me of all that. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Listen, the first question I was going to ask you was about your nickname, Digger. Who first gave you that nickname? I have a feeling it was Dexter Fitton, the guy who played at Lancashire for quite a while. And I think uh, I got a bit of a reputation, undeservedly, quite frankly, of being drinking too much. I had a bottle of Baileys in Milwaukee when I was 18 and 19. <laughs> we had a team meeting in my room down at Purley in Essex for the second team, and everybody brought a can or two, as you do when you're 18 and stupid. And of course, I fell asleep on the bed, surrounded by a load of empty cans of lager, which the, which the coach found, and I got a bit of a bollocking. <laughs> and then Dexter actually got it wrong. I think he should have called me Cliff Barnes. There's, you know, there's a character from Dallas. I don't, you probably don't remember. I do actually. Renowned alcoholic, and he was called Cliff Barnes, and his dad was called Digger, and he kind of sort of got it slightly wrong and called me Digger Barnes. So a bit of a long-winded tale, but that's where it's from. <laughs> And listen, before we get into the cricket as well, the other thing I like to do is highlight, you know, the similarities and the links between some of the players. Ken Taylor, I don't know if you remember him from 1960s. He played cricket for Yorkshire. He played football for Huddersfield. But he was also an extremely talented artist. And I understand, well, during your career, but certainly post your career, that's been a big part of your life too. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I guess that the, the plan was when I stopped playing to have three, well, I suppose four part-time roles if you... If you consider being a dad, part-time role, I was coaching, painting, uh, working for a wine merchant and obviously being a new dad. So four part-time roles, except that was a load of rubbish, really, because I think you ended up picking four full-time jobs and trying to squeeze them into one and it didn't quite work. So I'm a bit feast and famine with the painting, but yeah, it's something I still really enjoy and I've, I've commercially done okay with it. During my benefit year, Thwaites, the brewery, were, were sponsors of the cricket club and they asked me to do 13 paintings to go on a calendar. 
So the sports clubs were on the inside 12 pages and the front page was Thwaites Brewery in the middle of Blackburn. But uh, Royal Liverpool were, was part of their portfolio of clubs and Fairhaven, I think St Anne's Old Links. And I've actually played at a couple of those courses since. And actually, they've still got one of my paintings. They've still got my painting up. So Royal Liverpool, where the Open is today in their billiard room, my painting of, I think it's the 18th. Yeah, so that's that's quite a thrill. Yeah. And moving on to the cricket now, just explain to me how you're obviously known as a Lancashire stalwart and you were born in Accrington, but you moved to, to Yorkshire, to Doncaster at an early age, didn't you? So how did you end up playing for Lancashire and not Yorkshire? Well, they still had that rule, didn't they? I think sort of sliding towards the end, I think I was the final straw. The fact that they finally changed the rule because they got a young lad that had grown up in Yorkshire, played his formative cricket in Yorkshire. And I did pretty well against them for Lancashire. And I think it, they finally realised what a ridiculous arcane rule it was. And I think they signed Sachin Tendulkar and Michael Vaughan uh, is kind of the opposite to me. Yeah, he was born in Lancashire, but grew up in Yorkshire. And then he ended up playing for Yorkshire. But you know, but I was involved in the Yorkshire schools system when I was kind of 16 onwards. My French teacher just sent me in for a trial. It was all a bit random, really. And I just, I think for want of a better word, I breezed into the team. I fully expected it to be full of, you know, Bradford Grammar School kids and, and what have you. And there's me flipping, you know, blonde hair and bloody big feet from Doncaster. I got straight in. But then once they found out I got a uh, Lancashire passport, they kind of just turfed me out. So how does that actually happen? Yeah, well, it kind of cropped up. They just said, yeah, where were you born? Oh, Accrington in Lancashire. Like, oh, okay. Thanks for popping in. Seems absolutely crazy now, doesn't it? Well, looking back, I mean, totally ludicrous. You got, I mean, I, I grew up in Doncaster, yeah. But my parents are Lancastrians. I was born in Lancashire. All my family are from Lancashire. And if I'd have had to pick, you know, somebody give me the, the, the choice at that age, I would have wanted to play for Lancashire. So it turned out right in the end for me. But as far as the system in Yorkshire at the time, it was just pretty crackers. Yeah, yeah. So then you kind of immediately pivoted towards Lancashire, did you? And then pursued a kind of cricketing career with them. You knew at that stage that you you had the potential, I guess. Uh, no, not really. I played for Yorkshire Senior Schools when I was 16. And I was playing with kids two years older than me. And then the following year, I remember I got a trial for the North of England schools. And I remember rather sillily, me and my mum in the kitchen, almost kind of dancing around. Would it be daft if I got in, you know, sort of rather hypothetically? And not only did I get in the North of England schools team, I got straight in the England, I got in the full England team. And it was like, bloody hell. And all, all the way along on the syst- along the route, route, I kind of kept thinking, when are they going to put the good kids in? You know, where's where's the David Gowers and the Ian Bothams and all that carry on? And, and I suppose it it took me to get in through to that England system and playing with, I suppose, Mike Atherton. He was always labelled as a future England captain and I, and I started going to Lancashire Nets with Peter Lever. I came to realise that I was actually quite good at it. <laughs> yeah, we used to go to the indoor nets and there was a find a fast bowler thing going on by Peter Lever. And I bowled reasonably quickly, but I was never a fast bowler. And I just concentrated on smashing it in a pitch and bowling swingers and trying to get people out. So we went outside. I ended up bowling really well. Went to Lamanga and got a few wickets. Uh, got Michael Atherton out. And I think I think it's probably my performance on that trip which I was lucky because my grandma paid for because we didn't have uh, we didn't have too many shekels to rub together as a family, but my grandma helped pay for that. And I bowled really well on that trip in front of Peter Lever and all obviously these other Lancashire lads. Uh, and then he, I think he recommended me Jim Gledhill and I played for the Lancashire Federation from that point on and did really well. Yeah. So what kind of year are we talking about there? Oh God, uh, 84, 5? 84, 5, right. 
I got picked to play for Young England in the Youth World Cup in 1988. Fabulous team and uh, lots of lads that went on to play for England and lots of first-class cricketers, Chris Lewis, Warren Hegg, uh, Martin Bicknell, Mark Ramprakash. Yeah, so a fabulous team. Bob Cotton, he referred to me as a, a third 11 bowler in the dressing room to other players, which for the first part of my career was a massive drive. There's one thing that I was really good at. I was, I got bags of character about what I did. You know, I was determined and I wouldn't give in and I wanted to do as well as I could. That was, that was red rag to a bull to me. That really pissed me off when I found that out. Then I played against Warwickshire several times over the next couple of seasons and I during the season, I got 90 wickets. I got 24 wickets against Warwickshire in two games. And both of those games were, were me sticking two fingers up at Bob Cotton. Yeah. Well, that was superb that you could use that to spur you on, to use that as motivation. Just taking a step back, your first class debut came in 1989, didn't it? The year after that Youth World Cup. Yeah, yeah, against Australians, yeah. Yeah. So that was actually your first first class wicket, wasn't it, against Australia? Yeah, Dean Jones. Yeah, do you remember it? Put behind, yeah. Yeah, like it was yesterday. Port Hegg, Bull Martin, we had loads of those. I think we've I think we've probably still got the record for the most dismissals as a partnership, I think. Yeah. When you come up against the Australians for the first time, does that give you a taste for, for wanting a bit more of the action in years to come? Do you know, I don't think it ever crossed my mind. I was just, I, I kind of, I was in the moment most of the time in my career. I never really particularly got ahead of myself. When I tried to explain to friends of mine what it was like, I said, well, it's a bit like having a TV screen on your face. Yeah, you sort of wherever you turn, you've got like a famous head in front of you. And I found it most surreal, but I managed to detach myself from that and just and stay in my little bubble and just run up and do what I could do as well as I could do it. And I played well against Australia. I played against the tourists twice, I think 89 and then 93, was it? Yeah. And I, I bowled really well both times. I got a few wickets. I remember getting Steve War out and Matthew Hayden. I seem to remember in the second game, John Crawley scored a fantastic 100 to win. We actually beat them. Yeah, but just keeping on those early days at Lancashire, obviously, yeah, that was 1989. You took that wicket against the Australians. Then you took your first championship wickets the following season, 1990, which I think was against Derbyshire in May. Martin Jean-Jacques, bold Martin. But what was interesting about that game against Derbyshire in May was that you took that first county championship wicket. Atherton took five wickets in that first innings. Was he kind of a key part of the bowling attack during those early years? No. I mean, he used to bowl a bit. And I think he was probably, he would have been better than better than average that he was able to carry on. Because I think as a junior, he was prolific. There's one thing that kids can't play. It's decent spinners when you're growing up through the system. So I think him and Gary Yates used to bowl all the time for Lancashire. But talking more about his batting and your first first-class 100, because you were batting with... Mike Atherton that day, weren't you? And you, I mean, you put on 243 with him that day. Do you remember that? Yeah, I batted with him for quite a while, yeah. It was at Durham, wasn't it? Gateshead fell. Yeah, that's right. I'd never scored any kind of 100 in any sort of cricket before that. Even junior. I think my score ever was 80-odd against Nottinghamshire. And that had beaten my uh, my 80-odd not out against Sprotborough for Rosenton under-18s, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could bat a bit. You know, I averaged nearly 20 in first-class cricket, which I'm rather pleased with. But yeah, 133 I got. And I guess really kind of fast-forwarding that and we're kind of approaching your test and ODI debuts. I mean, 1994 looked to be your breakout season. That's when you got your county cap. You took 50 wickets for the first time. Was was that when you really felt 
you know, I, I'm, I'm ready on the scene here. Yeah, no, I think it, it was a bit of a, it was a strange time for me in the sense, all, all, all the guys my age, because the way that the the coaches and the managers ran the team when we first started is it was, they were, they were huge on experience. And so there's a lot of players probably played a little bit longer than perhaps they, they should have done. And so I had to hang on and hang on. So there was a time where I was, I was getting a bit fed up because I was, I was getting a go, but not a go. And then we signed Phil Defratis and all of a sudden my spot, for example, was always Paul Allett was about to sort of retire, I guess. So that was the spot that was like, like in my own mind and everybody else's mind that they kind of earmarked for me. But then it kind of didn't really quite happen. And I coughed and spluttered a little bit. And I think then, then I think Daffy went to Derbyshire over the winter. For some reason, I don't think Wasim could come back. And so I was almost presented with it. There you go. Your number one English bowler in the team. Get cracking. Yeah, I think Wasim Akram left in July of that year, didn't he? But then Lancashire didn't make any moves to replace him. As you say, they put their faith in you, put their faith in Glenn Chapel, and, and were rewarded for that, I guess, in the short and the long term. Yeah, and no, I think it, it, we were both benefit. I mean, in a way, Glenn came along at the right time because he didn't have to do that kind of long apprenticeship, really. He was the waves parted for his position to be to be grabbed, really. Yeah. I'm sure you had one eye on the international scene as well. From a Lancashire perspective, 1994 was Atherton was captain as the whole ball tampering issue against the South Africans. So obviously we all know what happened there. It's been well documented. But from a Lancashire point of view, when Atherton comes back to play in the ranks, does everyone just completely ignore the subject or does everyone rib him? How does that actually play out? I don't think we could quite believe what we were seeing, if I'm being perfectly honest. It was, it was a bit of a stupid thing for him to do. Mm. Along the similar lines to that sandpaper incident with the South Africa. I mean, how stupid. They deserve a bit banning for being stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was an Ashes tour that winter, 94-95. You know, you're obviously playing well. Was there something in your head that thought, I might get picked for that? From what I believe, was this Keith Fletcher in charge then? Yeah. Well, I think they picked Martin McCaig, and Keith Fletcher kept calling him Digger. <laughs> <laughs> for large chunks, did he get, why are you keep calling him Digger? What are you, Martin, aren't you? I got the impression that I was quite close be getting on that trip. Got the wrong man. Got it. Yeah, but, but, it, but nobody whispered anything to me. I mean, I only found out, you know, little stories like that much later. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they just they picked me in the One Day Internationals the early, would it have been end of April, early May? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so into the following season, 1995. Found out a lot. We were playing against Middlesex at the time. Others took me on the balcony and said, uh, you're going to get a bit of fuss today. Really? Why? We've picked you in the England squad. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> They don't worry, said you're good enough. Fine, crack on. Wow. So we're a matter of fact bunch, really. You know, Lancashire lads, it's just just the way it was. We, we played in a great team. Matter of fact, we're all pretty down to earth about how good our team was. We never took anybody for granted and things like that. We took in our stride. Well, I took it in my stride. It was all a bit new and a bit exciting. But the others said, yeah, are you fine? You're good enough. But looking back, was that one of the proudest moments of your career to, to get that nod and have that chat? Uh, yeah, up there. It's one of them because it's the kind of first thing, obviously, you do is then get on the phone to your mum and dad. You'll never guess what. <laughs> <laughs> guess what, mum? Dad? What? And obviously, give up. They didn't believe me at first. But I said, yeah, hmm. a little bit surreal, really. Yeah, and then, obviously, you performed brilliantly in that match because it was England's 1,000th limited overs international as well. I didn't think I was going to play because I didn't play in the first one. 
And with us losing the first one, I just thought, well, are they going to chuck a debutant into the second game where they need definitely need to win it? I think Angus came up a bit ill, I think. Somebody was ill. So he just said, right, you're playing. Bloody hell. Yeah. But yeah, he took 4.44. According to Wilson, afterwards you said it hadn't quite sunk in that you were in the team, but you radiated amiable delight. That's about right, yeah. A- radiated amiable delight. I love that, yeah. <laughs> You'll have that. But yeah, do you remember the wickets you took there? Obviously, you took Lara as one of those four, didn't you? Yeah, I got Jerwin Campbell played across a bit of an away outswing and just popped it up in there. Graham Thorpe caught it. I got Jimmy Adams out, LBW, in swinger. And I bowled Lara. Was he the third? And then I think I got somebody out. And then I bowled, because I always bowled at the death for Lancashire. And I spent all my career, pretty much most of it, bowling really well in one day, one day games. And I used to bowl at the end most of the time. And so others had no problem chucking me the ball at the end and much to everybody's surprise, you know, like it's my debut, but it's just what I did week in, week out for Lancashire. So I think I got a wicket at the end. I can't remember who it was. What, what are you thinking? Are you, yeah, obviously, you're not thinking international cricket is easy, but you're obviously thinking, God, I, I, I've actually taken to this pretty well. To be honest, I just thought, my thoughts were, look, just this might be the only time I ever play for England. Just bloody enjoy yourself. Yeah, great attitude, yeah. I was quite relaxed about it. I was obviously nervous, but but you know, hey, it was there was a full crowd. I was playing for England. What, what you know, it's, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. So then I think I did. I bowled really well at Lords as well in the next game. I think I got a couple of wickets there as well. But Jimmy Adams out, and again I bowled at the end. I think I got somebody out at the end as well. So I suppose they had to pick me in the Test matches then. Yeah, yeah. What are your memories of that initial series against the West Indies? Then I was just dead excited to get my bag with my sweaters and my capping. It was just a. Well, yeah, you'd spent all your time watching this on the telly, and then that's me. There's my bag, and it's and you weren't allowed to touch your bag unless you were playing. And obviously, to play at Headingley, to play in Yorkshire, did the irony of that strike you? Yeah, no, it was just nice to play because I'd, I'd watched 1981 on the telly. I was at my grandparents, and we were outside a Radio Fusion Radio Rentals TV shop in Clitheroe watching that. And so the following year, I went to watch England against Pakistan in 1982. It was the first time I'd watched a cricket game. I like enjoyed playing at Headingley. Did pretty well there for most part. Then debut. Richard Richardson, first wicket. Yeah, happy days. And then the second test at Law was a very memorable game, wasn't it? Because that was when another debutant, Dominic Cork, took all those wickets. So when you see him doing that well, are you thinking, oh, great stuff, we've won a game for England, or hang on a minute, he's, he's in my spot here? A bit of both, really, because it was still all a bit, it was very shiny and new. I was just riding the wave, really. And I did probably pretty well. I didn't say I pull any pots up really, but then I didn't quite take to test cricket as well as I did to one day internationals. And I think that would probably be fair for me as a cricketer as well. I think I was a I was a very, very good one day bowler and I was very good four day cricketer. Good enough to play for England, you know. But yeah, Corky was yeah, he just added just a little bit extra. Goffey and Corky were similar in that way. And I think there's a place for for bowlers like Angus, I bowled a bit sort of Angus Fraser-ish, sort of metronomic, smack it in a pitch, similar sort of pace. Yeah, seemed to work most of the time, yeah. But you had a bit of a disastrous end to your early test career, didn't you? Because after the third test, well, talk us through it, because that was the Edgebasson test that finished in, in three days. Yeah, it was an awful pitch. It just seemed that their extra, extra pace really made a hell of a difference. It was uneven. And you're facing big, tall guys that bowl at 85 miles an hour plus. It, it it wasn't. There was a there was a queue at the hospital for people. Can't remember how many people came a cropper, but Robin Smith was black and blue. I remember Alex Stewart getting clattered a few times. Jason Gallion broke a finger. 
I think Richard Illingworth, did he play? I think he broke a finger as well. I managed to escape. I got one that went the other way. It went down and I was at LB hit me on the shin. Yeah, much safer, yeah. But that three-day finish enabled you to play in a Sunday league match, didn't it? Because that finished on the Saturday. And I don't know who cooked up the idea that you'd play in that Sunday league match, but what happened there? Well, I just, I remember was fielding down, I can't remember if it was third man or, or long on in front of the ladies' stand. And I just came in to field the ball and I used to have this habit of putting my foot behind the ball and my foot slid straight from underneath me and I, and I wrecked all my ankle ligaments. And it, it was a massive crack. It sounded like I'd broken my leg. The thing I remember most about it is these St. John's ambulance blokes who'd been redundant for about 20 years all of a sudden sprung into action and they were fighting over each other to get me onto the world's smallest stretcher. <laughs> then it slowly dawned on me, it's like, ah, if I'm getting it right, I'm not sure I would have been picked for the next test match anyway because I think I'd done okay, but not not brilliantly. Playing at Old Trafford, they would have picked an extra spinner. So would I have played? Possibly not. And I missed a, I missed a Lord's final because of that as well. Yeah, you missed the B&H, didn't you? Yeah. Thankfully, you had others, which we'll get to a bit. But then just keeping up your England career, obviously then there was that tour to South Africa that winter. Did that injury put you in doubt of going on that tour? No, but I didn't actually get picked on the main tour to start with. They picked Richard Johnson, who'd got all 10 wickets in a county game. So I was originally picked on the England A tour to Pakistan, right? which, you know, to be fair, wouldn't have suited me really. But then they did say, well, actually, there's a possibility that Richard Johnson has got a problem with his back, so you'd probably be going to South Africa anyway. So I got picked on the South Africa trip, yeah, as kind of like fourth or fifth seamer. Uh, and my good friend and coach, Peter Lever, was the was Illy's bowling coach and he kind of mentored me through that a little bit. He said, just, you know what, you're probably not going to play. You certainly won't be playing in the first couple of test matches. I kind of knew that. He said, but just make sure that you're ready to play, which is what I did. I picked in the third test. Third test at Durban and I bowled really well. Yeah, they was your best test figures, weren't they, in Durban? Four for 60. But in those three tests, yeah, the third, fourth and fifth, you took 11 at 19. So... I bowled really well in all the test matches I played there. It was really economical. In fact, Port Elizabeth, I bowled seven overs, seven maidens, two for none. I think the start of the second innings, I think. So, yeah, I bowled really well there. I was really, really chuffed. I thought, and I was on the back of that, I was disappointed. I, I played really well during that South Africa summer. Really good part of the team. Played. I went to the World Cup. And we weren't brilliant, but, you know, I, I didn't disgrace myself. I think I performed pretty well. And then I got dropped. It's kind of like, really? That stuffed me up a little bit, actually. Because I was thinking, you know what, if this was Lancashire, I'd be looking forward to playing. And yet all of a sudden, new coach and they don't like the look of you. You had your chips, you know. Yeah, because it wasn't that much time, really, was it? I mean, it's only a few months. I mean, just quickly back to the World Cup. Again, was that a proud moment to, or was that one of your aims, play for England in a World Cup? Well, of course it was, yeah. But I think when, when it happens, it's 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 all a bit kind of surreal and you're going along with it and it was I was quite able to normalize it from being honest I mean the pitches aren't weren't the best for me you know pretty flat and pretty slow but I really enjoyed it we, we weren't quite good enough though we weren't good enough conditions plus the opposition I mean we played in the quarterfinal and we came against uh, Sri Lanka and they just hammered us yeah well of course that was the famous World Cup where Sri Lanka ended up winning it wasn't it and you know introducing the pinch hitting and really taking it to the bowlers in the first part of the innings What's it like playing in the World Cup or playing a big series? Are you kind of insulated from the pressure and the media attention? Is that kind of all focused on the captain or, or do you feel a pressure playing for England in the World Cup? 
I think had I been a, a more of a senior player, again, I think I was still sort of, sort of naively riding the wave a little bit, to be honest. I started to feel a little bit of the pressure after that because I think the experience of being then dropped by David Lloyd bothered me more than it should have done. How did I respond to that? It kind of made me feel a little bit insecure, actually, thinking, shit, well, actually, I've got picked and I've done pretty well. Still doing okay. Why haven't? Why am I not playing? Mm. Was that communicated to you why you weren't picked? No, no, not at all. I just think at that time they they hired and fired whenever it suited them. And I think new, new regimes came in. They just that's the thing they did. They just got two or three players new to get the press on their side and to get all excited about. Rather than like they do now, is they pick a, a fairly solid core of really good players and they stick with them and they keep with them and they stay with them. It allows you to thrive in that environment. Whereas, yeah, it cheesed me off more than it should have done. But I think I'm not on my own in that. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that some players in your position would have been more vocal and maybe asked questions of David Lloyd? Yeah, but yeah, I had a few arguments with David Lloyd over the years. I I was involved with him and I probably didn't do myself any favours really by saying what I, I thought. But yeah, I think I think I was perceived as a fairly quiet guy with his job. I was not demonstrative at all. Maybe that didn't do me any favours, but then I am who I am. Well, that helped me get where I got to. So if somebody had asked me the question, I'd have chunted, but I just think they just saw me as a big Emil, big dopey bloke, you know. So what were you arguing with David Lloyd about? Uh, no, just if, if I disagreed with things, I, I would say so. We had that relationship at, at Lancashire. With all the players, we, we we had a really healthy, argumentative, but resolving relationship with each other. It's why we did so well, because we were able to have difficult conversations with each other and not take it personally. It was all about striving to be as good as we could be. We carried that on with the coaches as well. And some coaches liked it, some coaches didn't. Did he like it? <laughs> Obviously not. No. <laughs> Does that sour your relationship with him full stop? No, not at all. No, no, I don't see him. I don't see him anyway. But no, I know just it was just baffling. It was a bit baffling because I played a lot, virtually all my games for England, you know, up to and during that World Cup. And then after the World Cup, I hardly played. And I thought I'd done well enough to warrant a few more games. I'm not a big should have, could have because there is, there's only did and did not. But I didn't play much for England after that time. Yeah. And to bring this back to the ashes then, 1997 comes around. Did you have any hope or expectation that you could play a part in that series? No, not at all. I was picked right at the end of the summer. It was a bit of a yeah sixth test match, already already lost the series. It was my last test appearance and it was probably my least enjoyable, oddly enough, even though we won. It was fantastic to play, don't get me wrong. I was playing for England, for God's sake, you know, in an ashes test match. and I was. But on the other hand, I'd got to the point where... I was looking over my shoulder. I found it difficult to play with 100%. You know, playing cricket for, for Lancashire was hard enough, but playing cricket for England is, is incredibly hard. And to actually do it when you've not got both eyes looking in the right direction is, is, is quite debilitating. I think a few people suffered from that. You know, you look at, you know, I'm not going to name names, but you'll know the people throughout my career that perhaps didn't do as well as they, as they could and should have done. And I think there's probably a little bit of that thrown in. They, they didn't have both eyes focusing on the, to express themselves and enjoy themselves and, and because they were just they got slated by the press they were going to get dropped or it annoyed me that I allowed that to bother me as much as it did you know I wish I could have just brushed it off and and just barreled in and, and and got stuck in which I kind of sort of did but 
I mean, the players were fine with me, but I didn't feel like I was, I didn't feel like I was required there, if that made sense, but not by the other players. That's how I felt. Mike Smith, who was the previous guest on this series, he played in that series as well, played his one and only Ashes test. And he said the same, that there was a clear split in the camp between, in his case, the coaches who wanted him to play and the senior players and Captain Atherton who didn't. And he only found this out years later, but it was quite a weird atmosphere when he turned up to camp. Was was that anything similar to you? I would have said it was perhaps the other way around. Yeah, that Atherton was kind of your fan and did want you. And well, Atherton was always pretty good with me and he, he knew, you know, we knew each other as well as... You know, as well as we did, and I think he knew what I was good at. I think he would be more than happy for me to play. I think I think I was picked because Dean Headley was injured, and Dean Headley had done really well. So I think he was. They were saving him. He was clearly couldn't play in the last Test match. He was always going on the the trip to wherever they were going after that. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of it felt a bit. Yeah, come and have a game. So you know, we tell during the game because you like third or fourth change, get to bowl at, at kind of slightly shitty times. Uh, they wanted me to open the bowling, but what happened in, in those, those kind of times with the Duke balls, they, they tended not to swing straight away. He did five or six or eight overs to knock the shine off it before they started swinging around a bit, which is kind of the job I was brought in to do. I didn't get a wicket in either innings. I bowled okay. I whacked a few runs, which I think, 16, was it 16? I remember hitting Glenn McGrath for six. Yeah, I was going to ask you who you hit for six. It was Glenn McGrath, was it? Glenn McGrath, absolutely, yeah. You got me out, though. <laughs> The one thing that sticks in my mind about the game is Tuffer's got... Did he get seven wickets in the second innings? Uh, seven in the first innings, actually. Was it first? Oh, well, he got a few in the second as well, because I remember I was on the on the sort of slog sweep boundary to him in front of the um, gas, you know, the gas cylinders. Yeah. And um, Tuffer's brought me in 10, 15 yards from the boundary edge. It's an odd place to be, because generally you'd think... You know, you shouldn't be that far in because if it goes over your head, you look a right duck egg. Yeah. Tuffers had kind of w- waved me in because I think he was thinking that I think Shane Warm was going to slog sweep him and that I'd be in a good position. It was big, big, long boundaries at the Oval. So he brought me in. Anyway, this this thing exactly as I pictured it happened. He slog swept it straight to me, except it went straight over my head, but didn't go for six. Normally, you look a right twit. And others, others glared at me and gave me a bit of a bollock. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Bowlers brought me in. Yeah. Anyway, so on the back of that second innings, I think I was on. I was halfway back to the boundary at long on, or mid on. And they didn't need that many to win. Warren had a huge slog sweep at this ball. And this thing went straight up in the air, straight to me. <laughs> it was clear blue sky, which is the worst kind of sky to try and catch a ball from. And it's gone over my head. So then... Clear blue sky, turning yourself around is, is, is awful. So it turned me around. And, and all I could kind of remember about it was seeing, without actually looking at it, the, the, the big pavilion looming in front of me to turn around. And this thing went was going miles in the air. I was thinking, shit. So I just got my hands as high as I could so I could focus on something. Anyway, I managed to catch the damn thing. So obviously everybody's dead chuffed. And the thing I remember about it is the big screen at the end of the ground was... I wasn't elated. I've just got a total look of relief on my face that I'm not this. That was a big. That was a big moment. That, but big for me because I was caught in the damn thing. Yeah, that was in wisdom, actually. Yeah. So, but maybe you'll correct what was in wisdom because they said that you dropped Warren badly 24 hours earlier, but you hadn't actually dropped him. No, that was bollocks. That was uh, that was that was unfair, totally. Because if you technically look at it technically, I had. 
it was because Tuffers had brought me in that it went over my head and it made me look a bit of a twit. There you go. See how history is rewritten. So, I mean, it was an incredible game as well. Another three-day test. So if you think about the two memorable tests you had for England, there was that one against West Indies and one against Australia. And this is your last test for England and it's the second one you've won. So it sounds like there was a bit of uncertainty, a bit of what's going on here when you were selected. But once you're into the meat of the match and you're winning a test match for England, does that take over everything else? That's a good question, actually, because it's one that comes to the heart of how you feel about about yourself and about the team. And and I think if you'd say to me that we're going to win the World Cup final, but you're going to have a stinker, or you're going to lose the World Cup final and you're going to get, you know, six for 20, it's a really difficult question. I'd, I'd be absolutely delighted if we'd won. But always at the back of your mind, you want to do as well as you can for you. My thoughts on how well teams and elite teams behave is, is 11 people doing as well as they possibly can for themselves and it adds up to a, a team performance. As long as you don't, I think, do things that that contribute to other people's demise in your own team or, you, or you're really selfish about it, then I think that's how it works. And so very difficult to celebrate too much if you don't feel like you've contributed. That's how I'd feel about it. Yeah, I guess that's different then for a team you play for for a long period of time, like Lancashire, where you can enjoy more the team success and your individual success is slightly secondary. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah, and I think because you're with each, you know each other inside out. So, and you you just know that over a season that you've contributed hugely to to a win. I played in a final against North Ants, 1996, and I bowled okay. Not not my best day, but I knew I'd contributed really well throughout the season, and I was part of the team on the pitch that won. But again, another three day, as I said, a three day finish. Also on a Saturday, I guess you didn't go back and play a Sunday league game after that one. I'll tell you one thing I did do. You mentioned about the West Indies game. So we played, I'm sort of answering your question here. We played against the West Indies at Lords, you know, where Corky got his seven for in the second innings. I mean, if you've ever been to Lords anyway, there's an up and down hum all the time. Everybody chatters and then it goes quiet. Yeah. And this is the rhythm of the whole test match at Lords. It's different to anywhere else. And so I've had five days of this. We won, I think, at tea time on the fifth day. I then had to get in the car, drive back to Manchester to play in the third round of the Nat West against Norfolk. I'm not being rude to Norfolk. <laughs> but, I mean, what other competition? or oh, That just wouldn't happen now, would it? Mm. So I couldn't celebrate the win. It was a fantastic five days, but totally knackering. Drove home to Manchester. Can't remember to this day one part of that game, other than the fact Totally zombied and knackered. Right. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that was kind of normal for that for that kind of time. And I did actually look up if there was a Sunday league game on that final day, and it was in uh, against Gloucestershire and Bristol, but it was there was no result. So I presumed it had just rained all day. I think I went to it, yeah. No, I did. That's right. Yeah, I had to drive to Gloucester. Bloody hell, you'd forgotten about that. Yeah. I say so I had to get in the car, that's right, and drive to Gloucester, drive to Bristol or Gloucester, wherever it was, and then sit there in the rain. Two fantastic test wins and yeah. Yeah. When you get injured, the second you're sitting in the rain in Gloucestershire. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. What are your feelings now from Lingna perspective? Obviously, that was your last test. There was a West Indies tour that winter. I mean, having played the last test of the summer, you didn't presume you'd be on that tour? No, not. I mean, I remember the coaches saying, they made an announcement saying, well, nothing, doesn't matter how well you do in this test match, it won't affect how what goes on. I mean, it's just total bollocks nonsense. And I think Caddick had come in and, and he, he'd sort of, replaced 
the kind of bowler I sort of was. And if I had to sum up, I was I was good enough to have played for England. Mm. I think I'm cheesed off not to have played more one-day internationals. I think that would have been where I would have really stood out more than test matches. If I'd have played a, as many, again, test matches, I thought that would have been perhaps a, you know, a suitable return for how good I was, if that makes sense. But I think by that time, I think I'd had my my go, I think. And I was reconciled myself to that fact. Yeah. And then from a Lancashire point of view, you did enjoy a lot of success at Lancashire though, over your career, particularly you never managed to win the Kennet Championship, did you? But you had a lot of one-day success, which obviously supports what you were just saying about how good a one-day player you were. Any particular highlights? And you performed brilliantly in two Lords finals, didn't you, after having missed that one injured? Yeah, Lords finals. And big games at Old Trafford as well, actually. We were lucky to play in an era where 2020 hadn't quite kicked in. I think I played the first season of 2020. So fantastic memories of playing at Old Trafford in big games. So Sunday League and knockout games. Played in you know a few semi-finals and quarterfinals at Old Trafford. And then, yeah, Lords finals. I went to quite a lot, actually. Quite a few as 12th man, unfortunately. And then obviously that 95 one where I was injured. But I did play in, yeah, two. I, I bowled really well in in all of them, to be honest. Anyway, we had a really good team. Really good team. Lots of lots of fabulous players. Yeah. Well, the Derbyshire one particularly um, stuck out for me because Derbyshire went from 70 for nothing to 81 for seven. You took four for seven in a six-over spell. And yet, and yet, you didn't get the man of the match. No, I never did. <laughs> what happened there? I think Michael Slater and Kim Barnett, they opened the batting and they just sort of whisked it around. We didn't quite get it right. I think Ian Austin and I opened the bowling. I don't think we're quite, normally as a pair, opening in one day cricket, we were pretty good. You know, we wouldn't give them anything. Then we got Wazim as first change. Managed <laughs> to frighten people to death, really. But yeah, Austin got the man of the match. He took three for 14 off 10, which actually included four overthrows. But you took four for 19 off nine and he got the man of the match. Can't believe it. The really lovely thing about that, Graeme, is that during that summer, my mum had been diagnosed with cancer. Okay. She said that she'd like to go to Lords again. Mm. And she was there at that game. And she got to she got to see see that final. That was a brilliant lovely picture in downstairs, actually, of me, mum and dad in front of the pavilion after that game. Superb. Yeah, so it was a yeah, I never made headlines. I was I was kind of I think if I had to sum up, I was either good or very good all the time. I was never really quite excited anybody who had a pen in their hand in the press box. I never caught for any bad press. I don't recall anybody writing anything bad about me. No, I think I was I was always pretty well regarded in that sense. Yeah. But I never really quite managed to like touch papers either, unfortunately. If I got six wickets, then the headlines were Darren Goff's got two for. Just um, last kind of words on Lancashire. I mean, obviously you played with some real superheroes of the game. We've touched on was a Macram. And then Murray Litherin came in um, towards the end of your career. So a word on those two. I mean, what was it like watching them at close quarters? How much did you learn from Wazim Akram? Wazim was fantastic because he was he appeared at the age where we all started playing and, and were in and around the first team. We used to call him King. Was he, he was fabulous. He used to do some extraordinary things. It was great to learn from. He was enthusiastic. He was really generous with his help and his knowledge. And, and he, he'd got an aura an air about him that you, that you wanted to do well for him. So I loved it when he was captain. He was captain for I think for a couple of seasons, and he was he was fantastic because he just, just wanted to run through brick walls for him. As for specifics, I remember the game was going nowhere at Basingstoke. 
I think it was early on in my career. Uh, flat wicket, sunny, nothing happening. Wazim was wandered off the pitch. He was feeling a bit cheesed off. Diabetic, by the way, so he used to struggle sometimes with getting his sugars right. But he, he used to wander on in his pumps. He'd take his boots off and just come in in his a pair of pumps. I remember him bowling Hampshire out in a pair of pumps off a short run-up. <laughs> and, and another, and another um, cricket anecdote from... I think this was a middle of my career, played against Yorkshire Old Trafford. I bowled about as well as I could possibly ever bowl. I think I, I churned Michael Vaughan over. I think I might have got him out, but I just, you know, played and missed. You know, I bowled really well in this game, as well as I could possibly ever bowl. I think I wandered off with two for 40 and Wazim got eight for... Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of made me think, hmm, yeah. And I'm, I know I'm quite good at this, but... So that was a bittersweet moment, but Wazim was a different class. Muller again... Um, incredibly enthusiastic chap. He knew more about cricket than anybody knew. He knew more about me than I did. And he had, he had a fantastically infectious enthusiasm about him. I mean, I mean, unbelievable spin. He used to aim off the pitch. That's why he used to bowl around the wicket, because if he bowled over the wicket, he'd be aiming off the green, off the cut strip most of the time. Brilliant. And then just from an England perspective, obviously we spoke about Mike Atherton, but two other players that you would have seen come through the ranks, Flintoff and Jimmy Anderson. So what are your memories of those and what was it like seeing them at close quarters? I think I first saw Fred. I'd gone down into the second team for some reason. So I think, I think I'd been injured and, some, and I was trying to get back in the team. So he said, well, just have a second team game and have a bit of a bowl and have a bit of a bat. And, and young Freddie, I think, is a 16-year-old. It was like a big great day and he's all, all arms and legs. And he was always a, a name that we'd, we'd come across. So that's the first time I remember seeing him. He was just a hugely talented lad, an enormous bloke in lots of different ways. I mean, he, he picked me up in the dressing room and put, put me over his shoulder and just walked around like I, like I was a bale of straw. Well, I'm not a little bloke, you know. No. <laughs> Jimmy's quiet. We had a lot of young fellas came and went during, obviously, my time. And and you can kind of tell the ones that have got a chance of staying around, not, not necessarily so much from how talented they are, but how they behaved you know, and how respectful they were or how how certain they were or, or, or they'd, they'd sit back and listen, they'd take things in. And, and and Jimmy was a little bit like that. He was fairly quiet, fairly shy, and he didn't say very much, but he just kind of got on with it. And you, and he's like, wow, hang on a minute. Blood can, you know, he's not using, he's, he's not bowling with his mouth. He just kind of got on with it. And he was clearly going to be good enough to, to play in the first team. He got a hat-trick, I think, against Essex including getting Nasser Hussain out. I seem to remember in one of his early games. Yeah, and I also mentioned him because you also had him to thank for your second first-class 100, didn't you? Yes, no, I was, yeah. No, that was uh, yeah, against Warwickshire. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy, yeah, he was nervous as hell. I remember that, yeah. Incredibly, you put on 87 for the final wicket because you were at, you were batting at 10. He was obviously at 11. <laughs> you put on 87 for the final wicket to see you over the line for your 100. I must have got most of them, I guess. Yeah, you did, nearly all of them, yeah. Well, I remember, I thought I bad quite a while with Chris Schofield in that game. I, think. I remember David Bias got 100. Schofield got 90-odd, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a flat pitch. I think we got, we got millions. But yeah, now I got 100 second and I was dead chuffed. Yeah, bet you were, yeah. I remember me 200s. I can't remember all the 606 wickets you mentioned. Well, I think, I think with all my one-day wickets added together, I think I got nearly 1,000 for Lancashire altogether. But it's amazing how many of those I can remember. <laughs> there aren't many. But you've reminded me quite a few, so thank you. Yeah, no worries. So, okay, well, let's just wrap this up then. What about calling time on your career? What what happened there? Was that injury-related? Was that a sad moment? Yeah, it was injury. I was still doing really well. 
Unfortunately, I was bowling as well as I'd always had. I was bowling down at Sussex. I think I'd just got, oh, bloody hell, I can't remember the name of the guy. The guy that's the commentator on the telly for Sky. Ian Ward. Correct, Ian Ward. I think I'd just, I'd bowled really well at him, got him out, and, and I wandered back to my mark, and I just felt something weird in my knee. I spoke to Gary Keady about it, who was next to me at mid-on, or mid-off. Yeah, and that was it. Something wrong with my knee. It got worse. Then spent the rest of the season faffing and numbing and ahhing about it, and I had it operated on because I'd got a bit of a slight meniscal tear. When they went in having a search, and the side of my kneecap was a bit rough. Just arthritis from... But yeah, it, it kind of it wasn't going away. And then I kind of played a few more games after that. But the, the cycle was get fit, train. I had the operation and I played in the quarterfinal against Yorkshire, I think, five weeks after the operation. Probably shouldn't have done. What happened was I played for a couple of weeks and then my knee would break down, get it fit and healthy and strong again. So I was as fit as a flea, but my knee had just said, sorry, you had enough. So I think I played my final first-class game my final wicket was at Cheltenham. I got Michael Hussey out. So started with an Aussie finish with one. Look at that, yeah. I played against Kent in my last game and I didn't bowl because I think I'd battered and my leg just... And I, I knew then. Honestly, I think actually that was fine by me. I think had I been set aside because I wasn't performing well enough, that would have been harder to take actually because my leg had made the decision for me. Fair enough. All right. Well, if I could ask you one final question, which I ask everyone just to bring this full circle, you only played that one Ashes test. But what did it mean to you to play in the Ashes? For me, bittersweet. Historically, I look back on it, incredibly proud and pleased. I wouldn't be able to look at that game in isolation, you know, because there's a, there's a few negative connotations for me for that game. I don't know whether the other lads have said that. But if you said, if you just change that to playing for England, then that, it's just, wow. I played for England. Fantastic. Wonderful experience. Peter Martin, ladies and gents. Thanks to him for taking us through his superb career for Lancashire and England. His Ashes experience may have been bittersweet, but he is one of only five players on our list of 45 to actually win the Ashes test he played in. The others being Greg Campbell, Joe Angel, Steve Watkin and Sam Curran, who, of course, may add to his solitary Ashes experience. You can catch up with my conversations with Greg, Joe and Steve in all of the usual places. And Sam... Maybe we'll speak further down the line. A reminder before we draw stumps that you can email the show cricket at onceuponatimeintheashes.com or find Once Upon a Time in the Ashes on Twitter and Facebook. I'm always keen to get your thoughts and comments about the show and your memories of the players featured. And if you're enjoying this series and you have the time and inclination, feel free to leave a positive rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. But that is all for this episode. Plenty more tales to come from the One Ashes Test Wonders. Your company would be most welcome. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett, and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. (laughs) 